Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhart. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. Also, we have a Patreon page if you want to support us as we continue telling these important stories. You can find that at patreon.com and search adoption colon the making of me. Again, that's patreon.com. Search adoption colon the making of me. And please remember to subscribe, share and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Louise. Here we are again in our closets. I love this time with you. I know, me too. All right, so we're on to the primal wound by Nancy Verrier. We're going to make her French regardless if she is or not. Yes. We enjoy that pronunciation of her name. Today we're discussing chapter six, which really is we're into the now what happens to the adopted mm-hmm. person. Not We're not yeah. really on a child anymore. This is getting into like what happens, manifestation of your other years. So chapter six is the core issues, abandonment and loss. And right away, I was like, oh boy, here we go. Just I, reading I've that. related so much to so much in this chapter. Me too. I was like, oh boy, this yeah. is touch on all my issues. I just yeah. know it when yeah. I start reading. <laughs> so here we go. So right at the beginning, there's two quotes, one about abandonment, one about loss. And I'm just going to read the first quote short and the second one, just a little bit of it. So one of the most common fears is that that of being abandoned. Abandonment is a dominant theme in child myths by Harriet Makadere. But that's interesting because it is a it is a theme in child myths. Whenever like something's scary for a child or in movies, it's always they're left behind. So that's it's just interesting how that is. Mm-hmm. Then they get into loss and bereavement. So there's a long paragraph about bereavement and then Conversely, there's a tendency to suppose that a normal, healthy person can go, could, can, and should get over bereavement only fairly rapidly, but also completely. So especially in our society, they get into, if you've had any sort of loss, which we'll talk about next, I'll ask you about that. There's our society and many societies, but a lot of Western societies are, you should just get over this. Particularly in America, I was going to say, I think it's yes, and probably the UK, just because the stereotypical button up and yes, and, but really, I think this is particularly American. Yeah, it really know? is. Like, you know, you should always be positive, and oh, you lost yes. somebody, and or something happened to your marriage, or you know, here's a casserole, on? move on. Yeah. It's a casserole, move on. Like that show, watch the show, Dead Again or Dead. <laughs> she brings the casserole. Aren't you better yet? Here you go. So what what kind of hit you in this at the beginning? I had a lot of things, but I know you did too. A lot. I mean, as usual, I write on the next page, you know, talking about the profoundness of loss. And this line struck out, there is no permission in our society to recognize in each of life's transitions the polarities between gain and loss or joy and sorrow. We're expected to be happy, sing songs, dance jigs, but never to mourn. Mm. Um, here, this is kind of, we are a society in which we want everything to be nice or positive yeah. and one in which we try to ignore or get through as soon as possible everything that's painful or difficult. I do, I was going to say, I thought about this when I was reading, and this is probably a Midwestern thing and maybe it's just a family thing in general, but definitely in my family, like growing up, don't talk about your difficulties. 
because in a way, going through anything felt almost like a flaw. Um, Yes. I mean, it's funny because we both have Midwestern roots. Like, even though I'm not from the Midwest, I'm from Colorado. My mom was Midwestern German and it's the stoic. And my husband's mom is Midwestern. It's the stoic. We don't feel our feelings or say, my mom was always really big on publicly having a certain face. Right. And I'm that way. So now I'm like that. And I'll be so certain. And Jack's like, oh my God, oh, you care way too much. And I have that. You can't help it. It's like embedded in you, right? And not even like as simple things as if you don't feel well, well, suck it up. You yeah, know, so go on I don't practice. get sick. You shouldn't get sick or, you know, right? that, that's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about this, just, I lost my mom a year and a half ago. And I was just telling you before this, I feel like I haven't, there's a certain time when you're allowed to grieve. And then if you keep grieving, people are like, Oh gosh, it's going to bring up her mom again. Or, you know, lately I've been having a lot of things about my father and he died almost eight years ago. You were with me for that. And And lately it's been like, it happened yesterday, but then I, even just to my closest friends, I just told you about, but I haven't really told you, oh, I'm going through this with my parents, you know, because you think I already beat the dead horse on that. And like, they're not going to want to hear, but you know, the reality is, is there's no time for loss. One thing I liked in here is she gets into, it's not just death or abandonment. It's all loss in our society. Like you get married, you lose your singlehood, you get divorced, you're losing the feeling. Oh, you, you should be ready and dating now. You should, you know, everything there can't, you moved. I mean, that's a loss. Uh, yes. This whole year has been a giant loss, you know, for yes. leaving my, the state I lived in for 30 years, losing my dog of 14 and a half years, oh. losing my job, you yeah. know, losing my home that I loved a lot of loss. And I definitely stuffed it down and Becker, you know, yeah, like absolutely. the true empty nest where it's like, okay, he is not, we're not coming living home. together again. He's not <laughs> coming home. Um, no. And I stuffed it all down probably to cope and be able to put one foot in front of the next, but it, it creeped in. It's been creeping in and, you know, I'll cry at stupid things. And, <laughs> it and does you know, I wanted to touch on what you said about your dad and it being eight years ago, but there's something I don't know if it's getting older or what it is, but there's something where that does feel like yesterday. You know, it is, it is, I think when you have that deep connection and the, and the loss, it isn't time is almost a con only a concept at that point. Yeah. Time is like, and I feel like the older we're getting, as you know, like it's flying by. I mean, I feel like you and I were just sitting on that truck driving around it. I got to say, by the way, so we talked our about discomfort. Yes, Sarah and I talked about this yesterday, not on camera, not on our YouTube, not on our podcast, but just when we get on and chat forever on our headphones here, we were saying, gosh, do we only do businesses together when we're highly uncomfortable? Because <laughs> we chose nobody. A lot of people know our truck, but there's many listeners out there. Our food truck was a tiny 1977 post. No, even truck. earlier, like 1970, I think. Yeah. Oh, you're right. It was uh, International Harvester. Harvester. It was a Harvester postal truck. So just picture your old fashioned mailman from the 70s in his <laughs> postal truck. That was our truck. We redid it. We'll post a picture of it. We should. Yes, we will post a picture of it. A a picture when we bought it. Yes. And and then when we put the seat in where (laughs) we put a new seat around to talk to each other. (laughs) We have a seat and we had this little jumper seat. And 
and we'd sit back there with this cold freezer and this little window where we'd put our heads and come up. And we sat there thinking, we're in our forties. We can't move. At the end of the day, we're like, oh my God. So now we've decided let's do a podcast together and sit in tiny closets <laughs> in our fifties <laughs> as we move around and get pillows under us. And oh my gosh. It's I know. So if you watch the YouTube and you see us shifting and, you know, <laughs> maybe see some looks of agony on our face, you now know why. So. We like to be in pain to bring out our special. <laughs> it makes it keeps us honest. Yes. All right, back um, to the chapter. <laughs> back to the chapter. There was this, something about depression that crept in that really was interesting to me because, you know, we think of depression in the society. Here's another thing we do in the society. We drug depression. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that you shouldn't. There's people who should be on depression medication. But we wanted to go away with alcohol, drugs, stuff it down, food, exercise, whatever it is. And this is interesting. I underlined a lot of this. Depression as a result of unresolved grief and anxiety caused by long forgotten trauma and a sense of impending doom, another abandonment, impending doom, another, Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting, work in tandem and often restrict the full functioning of an adoptee's emotional intellectual capacities. It's like trying to walk underwater with resistance. Yes. Yes. I thought it was interesting because you're I did feel I was a pretty happy kid and I had probably the best circumstance you can have being adopted, but I always felt there was impending doom. I was always very, I've noticed it as I've gotten older, I've admitted what it is, anxiety ridden or nervous that what's happening, but it's that impending, something's going to happen and I have to control it. And they get into the issues of control. If I can control my environment a hundred percent, then nothing will happen, which obviously we know you can't do. Yes. (laughs) It's funny how the different manifestations. So there was one thing that I highlighted, except in the case of some truly enlightened adoptive mothers, there is no acknowledgement of the child's loss of the original mother. Never. You know, my mom would say nice things sometimes because she knew it was important and she cared. And I'm sure it really, she lost a baby. I mean, you know, delivered a full baby and lost the baby. So I feel like she did have a sense of what my biological mother, Linda, must have gone through. So sometimes she would say, it was so brave of your mother, really. And I couldn't understand that as a kid. I'm like, brave, you know, because I didn't have a child. I mean, I didn't know what she was talking about. But that helped sometimes because I think, okay, she's, but then also she doesn't have any script for anything else. That was all there was. There wasn't, and probably for her to feel what Linda may have felt, that's probably pretty dangerous territory. Right. Yes. As it says, it would take a truly enlightened. Yeah. Like another level. I don't know that I would, would have been. I can probably tell you I wouldn't have been. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on my parenting, I'm like, I feel like I was a good parent, but I don't know that I would have been that strong about it. You, you know, know it's, it's, isn't this the, just the typical life I would be a great mom now, Uh, but you know, we're too old. (laughs) It's just, anyway, it's just the irony. Me too. I'm like, I'm like, your body is ready. I know your body is ready at 20, but your maturity level isn't for, certainly for me at no, Once I'm, I hit 50, I'm like, okay, I'm, it's, I feel like a different Gosh, person. I'd be such a good mom now. Yeah. <laughs> All those things I did wrong, I wouldn't do. <laughs> but you know what will be? One day we'll be great grandparents if our children want to have children and all that. 
putting that on them. I know. I know. <laughs> don't, don't let them listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> the things that I related to was when one has suffered a loss at the beginning of life before conscious memory, there is a need to work through this loss in order for the person to function well later in life, both personally and professionally. And if we think of unresolved grief as pathological, we should do so only in the sense that it hinders efficiency. The adoptee's emotional reactions to past events are normal and need to be validated. Mm -hmm. It took me here, and again, we say this all the time, but it's still always a process. You know, you're continuing to emotionally grow, spiritually grow, understand yourself, become more and more self-aware. So yeah, it's still just a work in progress. It's a work in progress. I thought they give a lot of examples of different children. You know, they change their names and she interviews people. And there was a, there was a man who said, I put this Michael, that's probably not his real name, but in his teen years, I put my parents through hell and I don't know why they were good parents. They did their best and always stuck by me, but I was always mad at them, feeling manipulated by them and striking at them. I couldn't seem to help it. It was coming from a dark part of me that I had no control over keeps going. Then at the end, he says, the idea that he was reacting to a trauma that he didn't remember had never occurred to him. He just thought he was a bad kid. Uh huh. And that goes back to the statistics we read. I mean, which yep. are probably changing now in modern times. And of all these kids are adopted bad kids. And I actually had a friend who listened to our podcast and said, oh, this kind of makes sense. Your first portion where you talked about the statistics because I knew so many messed up adopted kids. I'm like, really? God, that's sad. Like, <laughs> and even and then, I, I was a good kid. I was still not a good kid. You know what I mean? I was still rebelling in ways, middle school and high school, early high school, where it wasn't really appropriate in my family. Like there was no, my dad would say, why are you so angry? He used to ask me that. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just angry now. And some of that's just being a teenager. Horm yeah. The hormonal changes. of. But I had it in me. Brain. I was like, no one gets me. I yeah, no fit. one gets me. <laughs> All my angsty poetry and, and essays when I was in my early 20s was about no one gets me. Our next um, podcast will be us pulling out angsty poetry. And read. <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's one thing that I, and I have talked so frequently about this, and it was a big topic in therapy for me for years. Other adoptees talk about an underlying sadness, which seems constant and pervasive, a hindrance to real joy. Even mm -hmm. when I, and this was Anna Maria, an adoptee, even when I'm having fun, there's a shadow inside of me, something which keeps me from ever experiencing joy or what I think joy might be. Oh. I think till I had Becker and then I'd have moments of joy and as silly as this sounds, hiking and yoga bring out. Joy, joy, but really that felt so on the nose for me. Yeah. And it's interesting because if people just met you, they think, oh, she's just joyful and funny, you know, because you're fun. I mean, I met you. And I was like, oh, Sarah's a blast. Right. But it is a, I don't know. I had a lot of nicknames for my family, like gloomy Marie. Marie's my first name or like <laughs> moody Marie. And, I'll, and it, I was always a little bit like that. And people who know me well know that I'm like that kind of now it takes me a moment to kind of and as you get older, like you said, yoga and hiking and the outdoors for me, there's, there's things I've learned to do. I've learned to tell people I can't hear that story. You know, I take things way too sensitive. Mm -hmm. A lot of adopted kids, I bet they get into that coming up. I'm sure she does, are very sensitive. 
in my family, it was like, oh, you're so sensitive, you know, like it was this horrible thing. So I always kept everything inside because I was I hit, I too, I hid, I hid everything, you know, and again, with my family, it was a blended family, too many kids, you know, you, it was not safe, not safe to, um, and it's saying in here in this book, talking about this being PTSD, which, which I thought that was interesting. It's really a form of PTSD because how could it not be? You're taking this child. And I was thinking about in so many scenarios, I mean, there's so many different ways children are without their mothers at birth through horrible other tragedies. So it's like, you're taking a child ripped from that. I do think if it, say a mother's killed in a car accident and the baby's born, people will be very like, oh my gosh, what that child's been through. Being adopted, no one, it's like, oh, that was good for that baby. Isn't that interesting? Like it's a, it's a win-win, which it is it, a win-win, but you know, it's a. My mom and I had a talk recently talking about like when she left and she, she really wants me to understand that it, it wasn't a choice and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And and I kind of said, that's logic. And a child doesn't understand that. All that a child knows is that, that they've been left. It doesn't, there's no, right. no intellectual response to that as a kid. You take that on yourself as a child. Yeah. So like um, when parents get divorced, it's their fault. Like the children feel like it's yes. their fault, whatever it is, there's no logic for it. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting because it's so hard. I mean, it is hard being a mom, (laughs) having to tell your kids, I did these things for this reason. It's very hard. Yes. Again, it's one of those long, long chapters that, oh, here's something. And I can't believe I'm going to admit this. There's so many, you know, talking about the manifestations. Yes. And there's PTSD, separation and loss in childhood, the numbing effect. Uh, the numbing effect was interesting. Yeah. If you leave, you're out. Oh, that's me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you leave me, you're out. I'm done. Yeah. Yep. Done, done, done. I'll even um, say that. Even now I say it to be horrible. Fears of abandonment are not fantasies. This is actually what I was just saying about that. It not being an intellectual thing, but here's where I was like, oh my God. Stealing and hoarding. Another behavior which manifests in adopted children is stealing or hoarding. Mm -hmm. The people from whom the child steals are those he likes or respects the most, his parents, siblings, teachers, or best friends. Some adoptees reflecting upon this as adults say that part of this is a feeling that they themselves had been stolen, which is easier to accept than the fact that their mothers gave them away, and that therefore stealing must be all right. It is a legitimate way to get what one feels one needs. And I remember I had forgotten all about this, you know, after I'd run away and gone to Miami and I was like in summer school and I made friends with this girl and I would steal from her. I would bar- say, can from I borrow her. Your- from her. I would say, can I borrow your makeup? And she'd hand me her purse. And then I would like take out a couple of dollars each time. And finally, one day she confronted me about it. And she's like, Sarah, I love you so much. And I know that things have been hard for you. Can you please tell me why you're stealing from me? This was a suppressed memory until I read this today. And then I never stole from her again. And we talked about it. And it was probably the best thing ever because she said, I love you. And why are you doing this? I mean, that's it. And you didn't run away from that. You stayed friends. We stayed friends. Sadly, I can't remember her name. And it was so long ago. (laughs) That's because we're old. (laughs) (laughs) And it was part of that, like those traumatic years in Florida. (laughs) I can't remember. Florida wasn't all bad. I got to say, because my mom is listening, like 
thank you for taking me in. And it was. And I heard some fun stories about Florida too. Yeah, but <laughs> the beaches are beautiful. But anyway, you looked adorable in those years. You had the blonde. You were <laughs> the perm smoking, though. You were smoking. <laughs> I, now that you say, okay, you've admitted something. I had something in here, and I, I can't flip through to find it. But they talked about how you react to loss and death as a child when someone. Oh, the- you. so my grandparents didn't die till I was in college and everything. But my dog Muffet died. I'll never forget this because I thought there was something wrong with me, and this. It's like you, I did not remember it or think of it until I read the chapter. So my mom was very close to Muffet, who looks very much like my dog Duchess now. And my brother, that was his childhood dog. Mine was later Lucy because we're five years difference. So she was my childhood dog up till second grade or third grade. And of course I loved her. I mean, my whole life was coming home from school to see Muffet. You know me, I'm an animal freak. Always was, saved everything. And I came home one day and my mom was sobbing at the table and Muffet was old. She's like where Duchess is now. Like every day they're awesome, but she was old. And my mom was sobbing and sobbing like I've never seen. And I remember staring at her like what's happening. I just, I still remember what she was wearing, how it felt to walk through the door, looking for my snack after school, you know, the whole feeling. And she said, Muffet died. And I started laughing. I didn't know what to do. So I started laughing. Yes. She said, what is wrong with you? And I remember thinking, what is wrong? Like I, and I couldn't stop laughing. It was like this weird, freaky, not like laughing, like callous. It was more like, ah, like this weird laughing. And I went up to my room and I cried and I cried and I cried. And then nobody really would talk to me about Muffet. Cause I was like this mean kid who didn't care. And all I cared about was Muffet. Like I remember just being devastated, not wanting to like say anything to anybody about her. It almost makes me cry now. But they talked about how kids become numb mm-hmm. and when they are confronted with death and death of an animal, death of somebody close to them. They laugh or act weird. Don't express any feelings about it at all. Don't or... express feelings. And I'm still the person who doesn't cry when I'm supposed to cry. Like, yeah. if I, got, I mean, I lost both my parents in the last few years and I cry all the time, but I don't cry on demand. I'm not a person who sits there and people are crying with me and I start crying. I'm like my whole life's been that. And I thought something was really, really wrong with me for many years till I went to therapy. And then that hit me and I'm like, Oh my God, that Muffet memory came flooding in. And, and I remember I, I must've seen me. My mom was sobbing. We all loved the dog. She knew I lived for coming home and getting in the bed with her. So she's probably like, what the heck's wrong with my kid? Like weird kid, but I wasn't, I was this. Yes. It, isn't it just, I mean, I was a weird kid, but I had that too. <laughs> I mean, it's, Yes. But this is a profound chapter just because when you get into abandonment and loss of any, it's like, it was heavy to read. I know. This was the very last paragraph of the chapter. Although blaming the victim is often a phenomenon of trauma, rape victims and battered women, for instance, being separated from their birth mothers and handed over to strangers in the adoption process is the only trauma where the victims are expected by the whole of society to be grateful. They are not grateful, they are grieving, and the original abandonment and loss are the sources of many other issues for the adoptee. Yeah, the only place where you're a victim's expected to be grateful. Yeah. That's that's a big... It's so profound. I'm sure she got so much backlash for writing this when she did. I can just imagine. Hopefully we'll be meeting Nancy one day. (laughs) We're trying to get Nancy on the show. Yes. (laughs) We haven't started trying yet. We haven't tried it, but we shall. When we do plug you and you listen to this, this yes. is what we're... <laughs> 
Okay, so on that note, we have a very interesting guest today. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Louise and I talked about it for months, and we were intimidated until we heard about Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. Podcasting isn't hard. Believe me, if Louise and I could figure it out, anyone can. We got a mic, some headphones, parked ourselves in our closets, and that was it. Buzzsprout did the rest. You get a great looking podcast website and you can track all of your analytics to see how your podcast is doing. So if you follow the link in our show notes, it lets Buzzsprout know we sent you and you get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And bonus, you help support our show. So here we are, Sam Miller. We're so glad to have you. Just a little background. Sam, I found through our mutual friend, Mary, who was also adopted, and I'm, I'm imagining we'll have Mary on the show one day. But Sam, what makes you unique, at least so far in our podcast history, correct me if I'm wrong, you did not find out you were adopted until several years ago, just a few years ago. Is that correct? That's right. I, I found out I was adopted in 2014. Wow. How did that come about? Well. I have a genetic kidney condition, and I'd been in a study at Mayo Clinic for many years, testing a drug, and my mother had already passed away, and dad before her, and I'm at Mayo Clinic, really, really sick with some side effects, so I tracked down a distant relative who I hadn't seen in 40 years, and asked her, hey, so I know this came from your side of the family, would you please share with me how your mother dealt with these side effects? Did she have these? And her response was, you mean that horrible bitch knew you would need a body part one day, but she didn't tell you you're adopted. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. Okay. So backtrack a little, the yeah. family, some of the family then knows you're adopted. No one spilled um, the beans along the way. Yeah. So the way that she described it, because at the time I hadn't figured out, I hadn't used DNA to figure out who I was because I have multiple fake birth certificates. Not one is authentic, including oh. the fake one at the hospital. And you you knew that when you no. were? No. Okay. No, I knew my mother had lied about her name, but she and I didn't know she wasn't my mother either. Oh. <laughs> you know? But the way she knew I was adopted was the family never really talked about it because I'm sure at some point in these podcasts, it's going to come up that my generation felt that being adopted was somewhat of a shame or mm-hmm. that you were tarnished or dirty or unwanted and that kind of thing. So that was probably part of my mother's motivation. How did you figure out? Did the, no, it yeah. was. Did your family, everyone in your family know you were adopted? Only only the family that we didn't talk to. My mother broke off from that side of the family many years earlier. And apparently the way it was described was one day I wasn't there. And the next day she showed up to visit. There's a baby. (laughs) So she told them she adopted you or did she try to fake that she'd had you somehow? There really wasn't much of a discussion with that 
family member who I called. However, with my own mother, there was plenty of discussion because I have children. So after my wife had a baby, I asked my mother, how on earth did you lose weight so quickly? You literally had pencil arms and there you are holding me with a cigarette in these pictures. The cigarette could have been an answer too. I don't know. But she just, she goes, she goes, I don't know. It just seemed that the weight just fell off. Oh my. So the lie continues through your whole. (laughs) Through my whole life. So let's let's go back to that that moment where you were told by your relative you were adopted and she knew you were needed a body part. Why didn't she tell you? You know, it didn't all sink in at once. At mm-hmm. first it was what? And then if you would imagine, I'm already very sick. I'm mm-hmm. headed toward dialysis. There was a lot of blood. I mean, this is not a positive thing and a lot of doom and gloom. And so I'm dealing with a family who thinks they're going to lose their dad Mm. and a job where, you know, in corporate America, you don't tell them you're sick. That's right. Because you want to get promoted. They don't like to promote sick people. So there's a lot going on. Plus, you want to keep your health insurance if you're sick. Yeah. So there was a (laughs) lot going on. And I worked for a fantastic company. I wasn't concerned about the insurance. For years, I'd kept it a secret because people look at sick people a different way. They do. But- it slowly, as it drew out, I was like, oh my gosh, this person knew I would need a kidney one day. This person watched me in a study at Mayo Clinic where I was traveling the world and yet I was taking these meds and flying through Rochester, leaving crying with gigantic amounts of test medicine and knew I was the only married child with children who were going to lose their kids. And this person was willing to keep it a secret. And then much later, as it continued to unfurl, and I figured out who I was, and here I am now, I found out who drove me home from the hospital. I spoke with her husband. And this was your, are, your biological mother drove you home? I, no, this no. was oh, okay. when my mother, my adoptive mother, drove me home from the hospital. She was accompanied by someone. And that person wasn't alive, but her husband was. And he remembered my coming home for the hospital. So they had seen me visiting with my family in Hawaii. They joined and they begged my mother, do you not understand? He will need an organ. Oh, my. It is your, your, and they were both lawyers, by the way. You must tell him it is like morally correct. You've got to tell him he's adopted. So at least he has a chance. Yes. And she refused and threatened to sue them if they told me. And if you had known ahead of time, would you have gotten so sick? Yes. In the end, in the end, you don't go up to a stranger and ask for a kidney. That's right. It's a long. Yeah. And there was a family member who I'm not really related to as blood, but we thought we were distant cousins who was young and frankly wanted to give me a kidney. And I just immediately refused because mm-hmm. you don't, you know, she's young and had her life out of her. Yeah, so, it's a big... I mean, I was I wasn't like Mr. Noble. It's just the right thing to do, and so in the end, yes, it would have been good to know if I was adopted. You can't imagine going through things like having medical devices put down your throat under anesthetic because your father died of pancreatic cancer and you thought it was your father, and your mm. mother let you go through these medical procedures knowing that you were looking for pancreatic cancer. 
you're at Mayo Clinic and they're doing the questionnaires and they go family history. Yeah. And you're filling it in. You're filling it right. in because you think they're your family. Like Sarah and I have always known we're adopted. So we always yeah. write, you know, unknown history. They start from there. Yeah. So you're not filling this, in the other. Yeah. This person yeah. was making life and death decisions for me. That's just. How was your relationship with her growing up? And did you, this is sort of a two pronged question. One is one of our themes that we have been talking about in this podcast is that sense of abandonment that even if you didn't know that you kind of lived with you with adoptees in their whole life or some sort of missing something that felt missing. So I want to know if you had those feelings, number one, number two, how was your relationship with your mom? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll remember both of those points. What, (laughs) What is, what is interesting is as you go through these major life experiences is you join communities you didn't know you were a part of. And then you learn about those communities and what they, many of them have felt. And as we go through this interview, if there's any time, it includes the community of folks that had some sort of abuse. And to answer the first question, my relationship with my mother who raised me, my adoptive mother, wasn't optimal. Mm -hmm. And there were things that she did and said that were abusive. To the point where I would question, and it did, it would race through my head, how could someone treat their own flesh and blood in this way? And this is someone who did not come to my wedding. Mm-hmm. This is someone who locked me under the house when I was three in a crawl space. Mm-mm. This is someone who, when my first child was born, my son, I said, don't you want to come see your grandchild? And she goes, we'll come visit when it looks like a baby. And that's wonderful because she raised a baby. I'm so yeah, sorry so, that you went through no, that. Yeah. yeah, but I'm here. You are. <laughs> you are I'm here. here. And, and here you humor. are. And you here know. you are. You've raised two kids who are graduating college. Are oh, both yeah. Them are, uh, you know, that is just. And we hug. We all love, went, each, we love each other. We are excited to be around each other. Yeah. So there's that. So the relationship was suboptimal. It certainly could have been better. In the end, my wife. My wife and I agreed, why would you even get on a plane and fly in to get abused? Right. There's a point where you just, you know. So my wife never came to visit again after a certain point. So there's that. And you mentioned the abandonment thing. You know, that was the wrong. It's okay. It's okay. It's more just a sense of not belonging, longing, not belonging, belonging. Yeah. Yeah. There it was natively there. It was very strange. And Part of my case, part of what happened with me was if you were to look up the Franzak stolen baby case, when I found out I was adopted at the same time, Barbara Walters was doing this thing on a baby who had been stolen and returned to his family. And the FBI got involved thinking I might be that stolen baby. Mm. It became filled with intrigue because the FBI didn't want to get caught in the news releasing that they knew they delivered the wrong baby to this family in 1967 saying, this is your baby. So anybody who watches Paul's case, Paul and I are friends now after everything we went through, because there was this 2020 episode I was on. Um, But right from the beginning, there's something that was missing. And I've been told by a therapist that I probably didn't get this lie the baby on the mother's stomach or breast 
after the baby's born. In the 60s, they would simply take you out and bring you to the next room. Mm-hmm. And there is a protein, there's a mixture of hormones and proteins, I believe, that you get when you're born that I know I didn't get. So yeah. from the beginning, even though my birth mother was doing her best, I mean, hell, she was in college. So she was doing her best. I knew I wasn't wholly wanted by this woman. Yes. I mean, it's so layered, this whole thing, because when you yeah. found out, when you found out you were, you were adopted, you're going through all these medical proceedings and you're in a terrible time in your life. And then all of a sudden, there's probably a sense of like, wait a second, this lines up. It did. It did. Yeah. It was a, oh, okay. Well, this is okay then. Well, this makes like sense. Some, <laughs> some of it was like, oh, okay, now I can see. Okay. You were basically, your husband died when you were, when the babies were three and four. And now you are stuck a good looking broad with a neat accent from out of the country. And you're stuck raising these babies that maybe you didn't completely want. Mm. That would truly suck. So well, you had a sibling. Was your sibling also adopted? He was, and he and I no longer speak. Okay. There was a dynamic in the family of if mom wanted to be mad at or abuse child A or child B, then child A or child B was now going to be the victim. And the other and one was probably I was board. the victim, and I was always the victim. And once my mother was gone, then the person I was raised with chose that they were going to continue on with verbal abuse and that kind of stuff. And, you know, when you are dying, when you're fatally ill, Mm -hmm. getting abusive texts and phone calls, pretty easy to just turn off. Yeah. But since I lived, I don't like that in my life. I I sort of, I like that you found it out only because you had this past and now you can be like, okay, I'm free. I'm free. Those aren't my people. I mean, literally I'm free. Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually quite happy. Yeah. I'm just, and you have a wonderful family and you're a wonderful father and you love your wife. I mean, the, well, that's nice. You've, <laughs> but you've, let's call them. Let's, let's, call them. <laughs> we were, let's, let's get them on and see how this is going. Yeah, my son does voiceovers. He'd sound great on this. Podcast. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Coming up, I mean, I know we know you have a biological brother and I want to get to that, but I want to kind of finish the piece of your Mm -hmm. past. What was your father's role in all this? Your adoptive Adoptive father. father. Yeah. My my adoptive father, his name was Harold Mosack, and he was a Chicago hero. He had saved people from a a burning building. Wow. He had been in World War II. He was a, a doctor and he was, even though he died when I was three, I'll try not to get emotional here. He was my sole memory of what unconditional love Mm. and safety feels like for a child. Mm. And because I had that, Mm -hmm. that was the hook. That is something that helped me even when I was on my deathbed in Mm. my 50s. I recall that. I remember it. And it's not just baby pictures. You can remember, like I remember standing on the hospital steps. He had pancreatic cancer. And I remember the nurse and her wearing her mask, walking up to my mother and whispering something in her ear quietly and us turning around and walking away. Mm. And we were there to go visit him and we didn't get to see him. Mm -hmm. And did your mother 
handle that telling you of his death in a graceful way or yes it wasn't like she she wasn't completely cruella de vil she was close <laughs> no <laughs> most of the time the puppies did not have their spots and it was not okay but in this particular case when dad died she told us that he was such a good doctor that god needed a good doctor for all the babies in heaven oh and while that sounds lovely that sure puts you in a situation where God must be really mean. Yes. Yeah. So, God, you know, God's picking and choosing these kids. You know, so how do you explain to a three-year-old, you will never, the one protector who truly loved you is now gone. Mm. And this, this big, this big creature in the sky took him away. And did things get worse after your father was gone? Your it did. It did. Father? It was that, excuse my language if I'm offending anyone, but no. it, was that, it was that oh shit moment. Yeah. And I, you know, I, like a light switch. Oh shit, I'm on my own with this lady. Yeah. And she likes my brother better. Mm. Was your brother older or younger? 15 months older. Okay. Oh, and close in age. That's interesting. Yeah. And then your mom remarried a couple times. Yes. There were four marriages, don't need to go into all the detail, but the final one, <laughs> final one, the last name was Miller and first name was the same as mine. So I became a junior. And how old were you when you were, when that I was happened? 11 when she remarried. Wow. And changed your name? Yes. Huh. We, no. he, ado- he adopted us. And so you were twice adopted. <laughs> she wanted. You were twice she adopted. Wanted a, a, she wanted a father for her children. I mean, in that era, I mean, you can yeah. understand it. Uh, you know, that was not, really all not, the choices women had. No, ex- exactly. It's not just it's not just choices. It's who so are yeah, there was no choice. Yeah, who are you raised to be, and who do you? What do you think you are? You are a woman, and therefore you've got to be this. Yes, you safety. Know? And, I mean, security. And the mother who raised me, she was brilliant. A brilliant lady, a dietitian, went to Duke. Wow. In many cases, like one of the conclusions I'd like to reach, even when we're talking about adoption, is I'm now a, a DNA expert because I figured out all the DNA on my own after 18 months. And I can tell you that we are somewhat our DNA, but there, and it's my own belief, we are our spirit. We are, in fact, somebody who is not our DNA. Mm-hmm. And in this life, if you have the opportunity to make some decisions, you are the result of your decisions and experiences. Yeah, and I'm so- a b- big believer in the spiritual part of that. And the it's the nature nurture part too. You are born with certain things, but then you are who you are from the minute you're born. You have a certain essence yeah. and personality and and yeah. you come into the world with gifts to give or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Yeah. This is <laughs> Okay, so now you know you're adopted. Yeah, now I know I'm adopted. So the first thing, of course, one would logically do is mix martinis. Dress <laughs> in drag. Well, that's, of course. I, I dressed in drag and that's put like- out pictures on my caring bridge that said, if you see a woman who looks like this, do not be alarmed. <laughs> Call me right away. <laughs> so I sent those pictures out. You know, people were like, "Oh, you're crazy." I'm like, "What would you do?" Yeah, you, I mean, you, you explain this one. And so some friend, 
a friend on the West Coast and the East Coast happened to be watching this 2020 episode that Barbara Walters was doing about this stolen baby. And they saw, of course, you know, Crazy Sam in drag. And my wife had a great idea. One of them was in blonde with pigtails in case she dyed her hair blonde and moved to Sweden and married someone rich. So I was wearing my fur coat. I have a gigantic, obnoxious fur coat. Um, Anyway, we posted those pictures. My friends watched this episode. They do a age-progressed picture of what this stolen baby would look like today. You sent us that. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them called the FBI and said, we got your kid. And the other one called me going, oh my God, you have to watch this. And I'm like, you know, I'll shout out to Wendy. Crazy Wendy said, we have to watch this. So let's watch it. So we're all around the table and I'm like putting it on the screen at the kitchen table and every fork dropped at the same time. We all sat there going, what? Oh my! You know, because I'm like, what, what is, what is this? You know, because the state of Illinois had told me, like it called them trying to figure out who I was. And they go, oh, it's going to be months before we get you your original birth certificate. So you'll have to wait. And I'm like, I could be dead by then. So please put a rush on it. And meanwhile, up pops this picture. And I'm going, I have I have no idea what's going on. But at this point, we're living in, you know, like a far side cartoon. Oh, you or, think you're, you know, yes, I can even ridiculous. imagine. Did the, so, did the wrong year jump out at you at all? Like, wasn't the baby a different year? It was year? the right year. Oh, it was the right year. Oh, it was like, if you know someone who was born oh my God. in, <laughs> like, I think April 1964, you know, that kind of thing, who looks like this, who God. doesn't know who they are, call the FBI immediately. That's insane. How you did know, you... How did you become friends with the real the baby who oh, was stolen? Well, this was this was this is kind of <laughs> neat. Paul's a Paul is a really just straightforward guy. And the FBI actually thought there was a pretty good chance that I was this baby because what I didn't know is that they knew in their own records that they had turned in they they were like, "A baby needs a home. Here's a home without the baby. The ears look close enough because oh there's no such as DNA." Let's drop the baby off. We're pretty sure it's not it, but we'll tell him. And so his mother goes, it's my baby. And she raises him. And the oh boy ends God. up looking, looking <laughs> like, like a runway model, while the rest of the family looks like Danny DeVito. You know, and he's looking around going. <laughs> and so they age progress the baby. I look like the stolen baby. And so Paul and I had a conversation. And the conversation was immediately, look, I don't want to mess with your family this has been so much trauma for your mother already. If I happen to be their baby, let's figure this out quickly and put everybody out of our agony. Um, Because just because, and the FBI took my DNA and lost it. (sighs) Oh, of course. (laughs) Yeah. And all the, the DNA companies contacted me because they wanted to see if they found family so they could do an ad. Oh yeah. So I ended up in all the DNA databases. Without even caring, like I, I didn't care about Facebook either. But no. I went on Facebook, going, "Hey, everyone, do you have a body part? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's me. I'm on social media. It's me. I might be really stolen. Baby me. now needs a kidney. Yeah, stolen. <laughs> that is literally it. Now it's not stolen, baby. You know, <laughs> live. So it was the whole thing was humorous, and, and I guess, I guess maybe in some cases a healthy diversion, but just a part of the collateral damage at the time yeah so much the journey it was it was a lot to that look back just, on that's why thank god you have humor i mean if you didn't have humor to well my my wife did too the first literally the first words out of her mouth were 
well, thank God my children aren't related to that horrible bitch. It's <laughs> <laughs> like your wife. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, kind of, kind of a good point. <laughs> there's some blessings in there. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, just the whole thing with the the special and you're finding all these things yeah. out. It's just well, insane. So then the, all the DNA companies did the DNA for you. Is that then you kind of were like, all right, well, I'll go digging down through well, here. They, and- they did the DNA and everything came back with there were absolutely no close relatives and a blend mm-hmm. of DNA. And you don't know who the father was and who the mother was. So separating out who's who of who's related is kind of hard because mm-hmm. they both we shared some com- common ethnicity and so or genetic background. And so you could you couldn't separate it. And one of the DNA companies, Ancestry, wanted to like lock down my DNA under contract for six months, which I did because I'm like, I could be dead by the time they figure out who I am anyway. So none of it really mattered at the time. I just, I frankly didn't know what God was doing. And Mm -hmm. I really just kept thinking, this is way too crazy. Something is going on. And at the time, it didn't occur to me how egocentric I was thinking it was about me. To be honest, you know, because I'm like, this whole world is swirling around me. What is going on? And it turns out it was really about everybody. It wasn't just about me because the the end of the story. Everything aligned. Yeah, it just did all aligned, but for a lot of people. Yeah. For the family and everything, it all ended up like it wasn't about me. There is a bigger picture going on because at the end of it, here I am, but here are two happy young people who were kids at the time living in trauma. Here's a marriage that started in 1991 with par- my parents saying it would fail and refused to show up at the wedding. And no, mm-hmm. I didn't marry someone completely crazy. <laughs> I married a <laughs> fine person, you know? And so I'm going to my son's graduation. I have a new brother who I'll leave unnamed who lives here in Dallas now, who's from Australia. That was through Ancestry? Yeah. So he came about. Yeah. So what happened was I didn't expect to be here in 2021. And I was doing all the things you're supposed to do, in my opinion, when you're going to drop dead and you're a father, make sure all the life insurance is paid up. Yeah. Meet with my insurance agent, tell her, hey, so I don't think I'm going to make it. The numbers don't look really great on dialysis. Some people don't do well on dialysis. Yeah. And if I drop dead, which I think is on the way. I had some near-death experiences. So for those who have ever had them, they're not fake. And so I just told her I wasn't going to make it. I was pretty sure. So I was doing all of that. And I'll just go into the kidney for a second. Two weeks after I met with my State Farm agent to tell her I didn't think I was going to make it, Linda told me she was going to pray. I told her everything's going to work out. This story is too crazy for it not to work out the way it's supposed to work out. So let's just let it be. And this guy walked into her office and his name is Adrian Serrano. He was interviewing for a job. And at the end of the job interview, told her that God was telling him to give someone a kidney. Oh, it just gave me my. chills. And I still I have the email from her that started with, you're not going to believe this, but. Oh, my. If you were to look up the odds of matching a kidney, I, I've l- heard and of this in in not in your city has to be healthy, has yeah. to have the right blood type. For me, it had to be one particular blood type. 
has to not clash with any of your flesh typing or antigens in your system. Oh my. And then has to be in a medicatable zone of at least six major proteins. The and odds they, are zero. Yeah. And someone walks in and says this. Yeah. He's your he's perfect I, match. Yeah. God, that is just, he's your angel. I mean, that's a I've whole. Had no, I've had no rejection episodes. No, nothing. But, Here I am. And it's been how many years? Since 2015. God, that's wonderful. Yeah. So there and do was you keep that. up with? Do you keep up with him? Obviously. Yes. Of course. Yeah, he's my hero. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, this is a dude who didn't like needles. He got wheeled in and got sliced open and gave a perfect stranger a body part. He's an amazing man. That's yeah. all. Yeah. That's beautiful. Wow. So, here we are, like, as it's happening, you've been through so much trauma that you're just still the world was swirling around me. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm at this point going, I may or may not live. I have no idea. And I'll tell you just one of the funny parts is if anybody ever had any near-death experiences who's listening, when you wake up in the hospital and you go, the hell is this? I'm not supposed to be back. Oh. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what happened was the kidney went in, instantly worked. I go home for recovery and you were more expecting not to live. Oh, yeah. Like this. That's I mean, the odds of whatever, all of this that had happened, I was already living in some Hitchcock film. I mean, you really, you know, but, but then <laughs> I, then when you realize you have major realizations, you know, life changing experiences, but also then to personally realize that we don't die really yes. affected me profoundly and still does every morning to this day. You never, it doesn't, you can't unremember it. And wow. so I, about a months later, you know, 2016 is when we met, I get a call from Ancestry going, we had a close family hit. Can we film a dinner? We'll pick it up wherever it is. And my immediate answer was no. Yeah. <laughs> no. I'm crazy. I'm willing to go through Chick fil A in drag. Okay. Right. right. God knows what I'm related to. Right. Right. <laughs> so the answer is no. Right. You know? But that's how I found my brother. And the DNA specialist from the 2020 episode helped me decrypt how close the relationship was. So he wasn't a cousin and it was yeah. a brother. Mm -hmm. it ends up being my half brother. Wow. And then suddenly, that's a story in and of itself. It's a book. He's a great guy. I love my brother. And oh. he's joined my family. That's wonderful. That mm. wonderful. Um, that's yeah. the blessings. That's the... Uh, this yeah, is, it's oh. quite beautiful. My children, you know, he's six foot one, blonde, Aussie accent, cats. <laughs> <laughs> and was at Columbia University at the time. He's the coolest brother ever. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, and he's seven years older than my son. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, so I mean, talk about gym shaming. You know, I've gone to the gym with him a couple of times, probably never again, thank you. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's all of that. So, oh, you know, funny. fast forward to today, we have a family that looks different with a brother and frankly, then figuring out that we share a father and finding out who my father was. Now, suddenly, if you're doing DNA, you can separate out the yeah, family tree of everybody who's on the father's side. Mm -hmm. And I spent the next 18 months doing what law enforcement does when they try to find a criminal from third cousins. Yes. So I traced it all the way back to 1850. 
on both sides and built a tree of 6,000 people and found my birth mother. Wow. Is she still alive? She passed from, she passed away from my kidney disease. Wow. You're kidding. And look I at mean, that. no, you're not kidding, but nope. that at the, w- time, think, at the yeah. time they refused her a transplant because not only was it relatively new, but also because they didn't know that people with my genetic disorder, it doesn't flow to the transplanted organ. Nobody knew that information. So they, they didn't want to waste a kidney. Yeah. Yeah. What year did she die? Oh, gosh, I'm forgetting the, the years. She was relatively young. It was the early 90s. Mm. Mm. And the ancestry, you're right about that, because they, that's how they got the Golden State Killer. Through third, well, they were thousand. using they were using a site yeah. called Jedmatch, which is yeah. much more cryptic and like you're going through Excel. Oh. But that's <laughs> I used all four of the major DNA sites to build one gigantic tree. That's from amazing. all the DNA. But and is your biological father alive? Everyone's gone. Everyone's gone. And, Just you uh, and your brother. Yeah, and I have a cousin on my mother's side. Fantastic, welcoming people. Mm-hmm. Um, once they figured out I wasn't insane, which, you know. <laughs> and where little, are they? They are all over the country. I've got family in Chicago. Turned out my mother and a lot of my family on my mother's side went to the same exact high school just earlier where oh I my. ended up going. Wow. Um, lovely people. And how just, d- nobody knew I existed. How are you put up for adoption? Well, now you know that you said that because she was, I was young. You know what? The birth, my birth date is wrong as well. I've determined mm-hmm. that. So even the birth date on the original birth certificate was somehow falsified. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they did that one. Cause that was or why, why they did that to hide it. It huh. was it kind of my, not traceable. Maybe. Yeah. My mother, my birth mother falsified her own last name. Mm-hmm. I know that cause it's a mashup of another family name that's part of her tree. That she put together. So she falsified as well. Yeah. Just I wonder if I get, she I get it. if she yeah, hid it. Too. Maybe she did her she, parents nobody know? Knew, nobody knew. This is I mean, she was good. She just refused to come home her freshman year of college. Ah, uh, for summer. Refused. Had the baby then everything's back to normal. Yeah. And now I know the address was on the, that was on the original birth certificate was not made up. It happened to be an apartment building near Northwestern University filled with nuns who would take uh, in these women kids. who were pregnant. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's actually more common than we know as stories come out yeah. that women didn't have the options they have now. Society viewed you different. Everything was different. Yeah, it, it was. And I, I think she was really damn brave. Yeah, I do. You know, this, but this was a lady who marched in in civil rights marches, who yeah. came from a family who would not have marched. Mm-hmm. This is why you have your you who you are. That's what's well. <laughs> you haven't met my brother. <laughs> well, he's from your father's side, right? So, and and yeah. briefly, what do you know about your birth father? He was an author. Clearly, there was a significant age difference between you and your half brother. So your your father had fun for quite some time. I'm guessing. Gosh, how dirty can I make my language? <laughs> Dad, Dad was busy. Um, he was a he was a published author, and we most recently found out very privately that he was aware that he had gotten someone pregnant. 
Mm. We didn't know that part. I don't know if he was aware I was born. However, I've even been in contact with the university where he went. And out of medical necessity, which frankly was a lie, I got his grades and found out <laughs> that he ended up on the East Coast two months after I was born in a different school. Ah, uh, sort of took off. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. And then he ended up living in Sydney. Hence, then you have the younger half brother. That's, that's right. What's, what's that's your brother with tattoos? Image. <laughs> image. What, what's your brother's name? We'll save it for the book. Okay. okay. No, I was just curious if he had a cool name, like he's so. No, cool. no, it's not okay. like Moon Unit or anything. Uh, right. no, <laughs> no, no, he's he's named after my birth father's brother. Okay. Yeah. And Sam, this has just yeah. been incredible. I mean, I want to take like another two hours and delve in. This. Yeah, <laughs> I know. In, you know, it's some of it is is humorous, and yes, I injected a lot of humor into it. And frankly, anybody who's fatally ill, if yeah. you don't go into it with humor, you're wasting your time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I went really into the gallows humor. I was the guy with fake cockroaches in dialysis, a remote control fart machine, and fake, <laughs> I love those fake vampire blood. <laughs> Okay. I did the thing where I poured the fake blood down my arm and had it trickling on the floor to frighten the nurses. I was very bad, but. No, it's wonderful. My mom went through a lot with her health and there was people that she would know like this who would just make her day. It's just, you you, you just, you got to um, go at least go out laughing. Yes. But the moral of the story, two different pieces of it. If you have those freedoms or give yourself those freedoms, you are who you decide to be. Mm. And if you decide you can accomplish something or be somebody, fake it till you make it. You might get there, but it's really up to you. And the adoption thing, here I am. Is there a winner or a loser? I really don't know. I don't know what the equation is, Mm -hmm. but I am delighted to have the family I do now. And I'm elated to have this fantastic brother and I have my health. I wake up in the morning still surprised. I so love it. It's all good. <laughs> I love that you decide who you're going to be. I love that. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I can't wait for the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that you're giving adopted people a voice because that is a community. And uh, sometimes you don't find out until right at the end that you're a part of that community. But you know, we share some things in common. There's something that we know that we're not completely connected. And yet we are. Yet we are. When we have fantastic parents, these are wonderful people. In some cases, it makes them all the better. They took in someone who wasn't their flesh and blood and loved them with all their hearts. That's how Sarah and I feel about our families. And yeah. oh, <laughs> makes me cry. You're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. This has just been such a delight to have you on. And, and yeah. Never know where your journey takes you guys. It never does. Don't. And, and we so- may, if we can do a panel or say, we may have you back at some time if you'd be open to that. Happy to. Thank you so much. You're for wonderful. Me. I'm so happy you're healthy now. What a, what a great ending. And congratulations. To you and your wife and your son. Yes. And daughter. And daughter daughter who has her own little radio show at Texas A&M. Oh, she does. Is she graduating this year or next year? She's got a couple more years. Okay. And I think the show is called Monster of the Week. Oh, I love it. Texas (laughs) A&M. We'll have to check that out. We'll we'll definitely look for it. 
Yeah. Cool. Th- Sam, thank, thank you, you Sam, really for your time. Yeah. This has thank just you. been fantastic. You guys have a nice evening. Thank you. You too. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening today. And again, make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, the Making of Me podcast. And once more, you can find our Patreon page by searching patreon.com adoption colon the making of me. Again, that's patreon.com search adoption colon the making of me. And the most important thing, subscribe, share, and review. That helps us. Thanks, everyone.